the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. I think today's episode is going to help you thrive in life and leadership because I have Arthur Brooks in the house. I am so thrilled with this episode. Uh, it's about an hour of some of the most calorie dense leadership gold you're ever going to hear on this podcast and perhaps anywhere. Arthur over delivered. I discovered him last year with his uh, number one New York Times bestselling book from strength to strength. I was going through a little bit of a rethink about the future of my life. And that book was so helpful. So we talk about that and a lot more. And today's episode is brought to you by The Art of Building a Generous Congregation. It's my brand new course and you can go to theartofgenerositycourse.com or click the link in the bio to learn more. And do you know that this is Suicide Prevention Month and Glue is on the front lines. They want to help people and you can go to get.glue.us slash suicide prevention to learn more. Well, Arthur Brooks and I go all over the place in this episode. By the way, listen to the end, okay? If you're a church leader who's occasionally looking for speakers, um, that's enough said. Just listen to the end of this interview. Arthur Brooks explains the science of your ideal morning routine to maximize dopamine and creative work. We talk about the secret of Oprah Winfrey's success and what it's like to actually work with her. What is a real Oprah like? Why most people get stuck in their careers in their 40s and how to move forward with passion and a whole lot more. Man, does he over deliver on this one. Arthur Brooks is the William Henry Bloomberg Professor of the Practice of Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. A lot of words strung together. And Professor of Management Practice at the Harvard Business School, where he teaches courses on leadership and happiness. He is also a very popular columnist at The Atlantic, where he writes the weekly How to Build a Life column. He has authored 12 books, including the aforesaid number one New York Times bestseller, From Strength to Strength. And his new book with Oprah, is called Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. And uh, my goodness, do we get into the science. We revisit some ideas from At Your Best. If you're one of those people who have taken my course on productivity or have read my books on that, man, do we go deep on that and a whole lot more. So, hey, I want you to know that last week I launched a brand new program called The Art of Building a Generous Congregation. And you know, pastors, right? One of the great joys of pastoral leadership is you get to stand in front of hundreds, sometimes thousands of people and ask for money. Okay, that's a little bit sarcastic, but you know what? You likely have plans for a mission that aren't realized because you haven't got funding. Maybe you need a new staff hire. Maybe you want to really impact your community. You're just short of funds. Maybe you want to build a building and you don't have the funds, or maybe you're just tired of being in budget shortfall week after week, month after month. So you want to see your congregation become more generous, but the process of talking about money, super, super awkward. So the art of building a generous congregation will help you build a financially flourishing church and it will get you comfortable talking about money. I, I had to go through that same journey myself, not an easy one. And imagine casting a vision in front of your people that helps them build financial margin in their life, but also live on missions so that you can fund the ministry that you lead. So we talk about everything in the course from how to talk about money to every single email your church sends about money, how to do it. We pre-write them for you. And basically it's everything you need to know about building a generous congregation. Also, I am, if you sign up now, running through a live work through of the course. So you just need to join by September 29th. This is time sensitive. Just a few days left. So go to theartofgenerositycourse.com or click the link in the description of this episode wherever you're listening. That's theartofgenerosity.com. And earlier this month, I sat down with Devin Klein, who leads the Explorer Connections program at Glue. They are reaching over a quarter million people, connecting them with local churches. And Glue is supporting churches during Suicide Prevention Month. Here's a snippet of our conversation. Yes, Carrie, this is a very important topic. As uh, we know, every 40 seconds, someone takes their life around the globe. Mm -hmm. And so this month, uh, Glue um, is rallying together with a few partners to raise awareness and save lives. And we really believe this is a collective moment where we can bring the best of what we have together to really make a difference. So we're partnering with organizations like Stay Here, American Association for Christian Counselors, and Quarterbacks United to make a difference during the month of September. Um, we also know that 94% of adults believe suicide can be prevented. And research shows that one of the best ways that you can prevent suicide is to simply talk about it. 
And so we're providing resources to churches specifically um, so that they can normalize this conversation within their congregation and also just help people be aware as to how they can also participate to save lives. So obviously, this is a very serious issue. And if you want to learn how you can help, go to get.glue.us slash suicide prevention. That's get.gloo.us slash suicide prevention. This is something really close to my heart. I've been in very deep seasons as a leader as well. And uh, man, if that's you or somebody you know, go to get.glue.us slash suicide prevention. And now my conversation with Arthur Brooks. Arthur, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Thank you, Kerry. Great to be with you and great to be with your wonderful audience. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, you are a a Christian, um, Roman Catholic tradition. Your Uh parents were evangelicals. I'd yep. love to talk about in your early days, and even now at this point in your life and career, as, as things are really taking off for you, what your faith has meant to you. Well, my faith is the most important thing in my life. Um, and it, it, it's, as a, you know, I grew up in a strongly Christian family. I had a kind of a mystical experience as a teenager, and I became a Catholic, which was troublesome for my parents. But they kind of, I think they, they, they found their way to appreciating it because they thought that probably Catholicism was better than drugs. So, um, so as adolescent rebellion goes, you know, fine. Um, but that's really, you know, been my home. And I married a Catholic girl, you know, and she's a, she's a good, strong Christian. And, you know, the wonderful thing is that now my life, you know, the rhythms of my life revolve around that. I start every day going to mass at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning and I finish every every evening at nine praying the rosary with my wife and we make sure that we read scripture every day. And so it's a lot of the same or similar sort of Catholic versions of the rhythms of a lot of the people who are watching this podcast, but it's also pervaded my, my secular life as a social scientist. Um, one of the things that I committed myself to doing was having an order of operations in everything that I do. I mean, I study neuroscience and social, social psychology and, and behavioral economics, and I teach uh, the science of happiness at Harvard University, which is you know not known as a great bastion of evangelical or Catholic. Not thought. anymore. No, no, not so much. <laughs> no, but I do have an order of operations in the things that I do, which is that, and this is what I recommend to everybody that they have a mission that they can separate out into the to the order of operations. So for me, everything needs to follow four steps. Um, everything that I do has to glorify God, to serve others. Um, I need to be having an adventure and making a living, but it has to be in that order. Ah. <laughs> and, and, and it has to, so that's you know, what you it, mean by your order. Yeah, that's what I mean by okay. an order of operations. Okay. And so if it's not glorifying God, I've failed at the outset. If I don't feel like I'm serving others with my work and lifting them up, it's failing. And then the other things are nice to have. I mean, that, that to enjoy my work and to make a living, what an incredible blessing it is. But they can't, those can't go before, um, you know, love the Lord and love your neighbors yourself. Well, I think there's a, an aspect, a branch of evangelical Christianity that's rediscovering, not quite mysticism. I mean, certainly, you know, charismatic, you can you can talk about that all day long. But like even right. John Mark Comer, who's a frequent guest on this podcast, is exploring, um, well, every it, it sounds like a Protestant adaptation of Ignatian spirituality, et cetera, et cetera, where there's a discipline and an order, or it's Franciscan, et cetera. He's got a new book that we'll, we'll talk about on this show later. What was the mystical experience you had to the extent that you're comfortable sharing it, Arthur? Sure. No, of course. Um, and I've even written about it uh, mm. a little bit, not, not in any great detail. I was a teenager, and I was on a, on a trip to Mexico City. Um, with I was with a, um, a musical group from the Christian high school I was attending and, um, at the time. I was a sophomore in high school. And we were, t- we were touring the Shrine of Guadalupe. In, in Mexico City. And, you know, for, for my Protestant sisters and brothers, that's that's a really important site because that's the site that holds the tilma of Juan Diego. That's the poncha that Juan Diego was wearing when Catholics believe he uh, an apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to him and imprinted herself on this bamboo, or not bamboo, uh, uh, um, it was a cactus kind of uh, fabric. And, and it imprinted on this, and it's, it's displayed in the Shrine of Guadalupe, which is this basilica in... Um, in Mexico City. And and we know in point of fact that after this occurred that the Spanish conversion to Christianity of the native population exploded. Mm. So before the Spanish were making a pretty bad marketing case for Catholicism, which is, you know, convert or there's going to be trouble. It, it turns out not yeah. to be the best way to 
convert people to Christianity. Who knew, right? Yeah. And after this happened, the, the idea was that, that Juan Diego, this peasant guy, he's up in the hills outside Mexico City. The Blessed Virgin Mary appears to him. The mother of Jesus appears to him. And she's a mestiza. She's a woman of mixed race. Now, this is mm. hard for us to know how incredibly transgressive this is. That, you know, that the, the, the Blessed Virgin Mary is going to be a woman of all races wow. and appearing to people in their own race. And, and I mean, this is a big deal in the 17th century. And, and so, and the result is that 7 million indigenous Mexicans uh, converted to Christianity in the following nine years. Wow. And, and there's this, this belief among many Catholics, she, the, the version of Guadalupe, that image, she's the patroness for the Catholic church of all the Americas, including the United States and Canada. And, and there's a belief among Catholics that, that when you look at this, you're, there's a conversion process that occurs. And it's like, oh, what a bunch of ridiculous superstition. And I was sitting in the church and I was looking at that tilma. I was you know, 15. I didn't even know any Catholics. And, and she was looking at me, man. And, and, and every place I went, the eyes followed me. Of course, I didn't realize that there's a technique in painting. You can paint Elvis on velvet and the eyes will follow you. So, <laughs> okay. right. Yeah. So, yeah. but, but it was, it had, that, that, that wasn't it. It wasn't that I think there's some magic in there. It was that I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about the mother of Jesus looking at me and saying, join me. I love wow. you. Join me. And I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And, you know, went back to my home in Seattle and I, and I, um, I went to the local Catholic church whom I didn't know anybody, didn't know anything about it and learned a little about it and read and read and read. And, and by the, by, on a little after my 16th birthday, I, I, I entered the Catholic church, you know, much, much to the great chagrin of my evangelical grandfather, minister, Dean at Wheaton college early in his career. Wow. Um, but you know, He's in heaven now, and I think he's probably saying, oh, yeah, not bad. Okay, fine, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would almost feel like apostasy, I'm sure, in some traditions, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, my, my grandfather was the, C.C. Uh, Brooks was a kind of a, was a, a big shot in those communities in those days. Mm -hmm. He was the director of the, of the Methodist Mission School in the Navajo Nation, where my father was born. And then they moved to Wheaton, where he had been, a, where my grandfather had been a student. My, my aunt and, and all of my relatives studied there. My aunt dated Billy Graham in college. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm telling you, I'm evangelical royalty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you told me, I mean, before we hit record, you said that your faith is, and I mean, you said that in your, your order of principles right. as well, right? Your faith is so important. Yeah. You devote a specific amount of time and resources okay. to trying to advance the gospel. So it's, just, it's I, I'd like to hear more on that, but you're, you're not known primarily within Christianity. There are people we have in this podcast who are primarily known within right. the Christian world. You're primarily known in the academic world and now the author, speaker, thought leader, secular world, but a very, very strong Christian at this stage in your life. Right. How do you order that? And how do you, well, let's just start there. How do you, how do you approach that? And talk maybe about what some of the decisions you made. Yeah, you know that one of the I think one of the mistakes that a lot of Christians make in in the secular world. Most of us have secular jobs. I mean, yeah. most of us aren't professional Christians. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're you know we, we do our thing. You know, you're yeah. plumbers and electricians and truck drivers and 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 college professors and 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 the truth is that that there's a priestly aspect to all of these professions if we're willing to live our faith with naturalness. You know. Christianity comes to most people not through kicking down the door and shoving a crucifix in people's faces or, mm. you know, convert today or burn in hell. It's right. just not compelling. Yeah. You know, that, that's not how most people are converted. Most people are converted by Christians in their lives with whom they have friendship and for whom they have admiration. Admiration and friendship are, are the sword and shield of missionary work for Christians in ordinary life. We're supposed to do our secular jobs. You know, there's a movement in Catholicism called Opus Dei, which in Latin yes. means work of God, of course. And that's based on the concept of the sanctification of ordinary work, that your work is your mission. Do it well. You know, be admired for the excellence that you actually bring to it. And then it's a mm -hmm. godly thing to do. And so when you're discovered as somebody who's trying to, to, to work for the betterment of other people, to lift people up and bring them together in bonds of happiness and love, They'll want to know what your own personal, you know, nuclear fuel source is. That's the truth. And the friendship that you can bring that has virtue and that is truthful 
and and is something that people actually want and they're hungry for, and there's too little of in the world today. Well, that that turns out to be, um, my evangelical friends always say winsome, right? Mm-hmm. Winsome. That's kind of an mm-hmm. evangelical word, right? Um, it's magnetic is the whole yeah. point. And so my missionary work is doing a good job in my work and making sure that that publicly it's in the service of others and and each day as I wake up that I dedicate it to the glory of my Savior. What are some of the decisions you made about how you spend your time and resources? Well, part of it is that I'm a product of research. So um, I've dedicated the architecture of my life to following what I believe is, is uh, revealed in, in the work that I study. So, you know, I study, and I study, you know, philosophy, neuroscience, uh, social psychology, and behavioral economics. I'm, I'm a social scientist by background, you know, as a, I'm a PhD social scientist, but I have to range across these other fields because I teach the science of happiness at the Harvard Business School. So I have to cover a lot of different fields as a, as a scholar. And, and, and as I'm looking at the research, I'm thinking I'm going to give people a lot of advice because, you know, I write a column in the Atlantic, how to mm-hmm. build a life. And, and the end of every column is, okay, do these three things. And I'm a guinea pig on myself. The result has been that that the architecture of my life is largely based on empirical regularities, which is just a kind of a nerdy way of saying, seeing what works in the data. So, you know, I have a, a, you know, I was as a young man, in my 20s, I was a musician. I was a professional musician for more than a decade. And I was kind of an undisciplined character. Mm. You know, eat what you want. You want to smoke a cigarette, smoke a cigarette, which I did. I shouldn't have. Thank Mm. God I quit a long time ago. You want to drink a beer, drink a beer, you know, that kind of thing. And, and the truth of the matter is that that lack of discipline, that lack of structure to my life wasn't especially helpful to me. So today, you know, I have a very, very structured life that I know actually will bring me to my best self and make it possible for me to, you know, live the, the witness that is my work. I mean, I get up at 4.45 in the morning. I work out for an hour every day. I go to mass every morning. Um, then I have my coffee, and then I have a period of of really high dopamine levels that makes it possible for me, for me to to focus on creative work for about a three hour period, and then I can structure other things on top of it. So making sure that my body is in good shape, I'm eating right, um, I'm making sure I'm getting adequate uh, time with my wife, um, making sure because again, this is this is this is basic sustenance, and 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 then I finish my day praying. Um, such that I can start again the next day. I mean, these are the, and, and all of this, by the way, all of this is based on the science, but it's also based <laughs> on the common sense and, and, and the experiences that I've been lucky to have in my life. Can you break down that morning a little bit more? I know, you know, people are doing sure. cold plunges and only eating this, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you, you mentioned the dopamine yeah. levels. Um, yeah. Can you explain, because I, I agree, my last book was about what I called your green zone. For a lot of us, our best yeah. time is in the morning. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you can have a morning routine that competes with that or cooperates with that. Right. I would love to drill down on yours a little bit more and the science behind why you make those choices. Sure. Sure. I mean, this is, um, um, and again, I've done this somewhat through trial and error, but mostly through the what the data suggests is the best way to optimize my brain chemistry um, such that I can work most faithfully. I can work best and, and, and in the highest quality. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. It's actually a neuromodulator. Um, and it's, you know, we often think about it as sort of a reward drug inside our brains, but it's not that at all. It's a neurotransmitter of, of anticipation of reward. And so it increases when you're in the hunt for something that you really like. It makes you desire. It makes you crave. It also makes you focus. It makes you creative when you're focused a lot. So what you really need, um, to be quite specific, is a lot of dopamine in the prefrontal cortex of your brain. Um, when you have an insufficient amount of that, you might be diagnosed with ADHD, for example. That's the reason that most of the ADHD drugs, they're dopamine enhancers to the prefrontal cortex. It's also one of the reasons that nicanoids the active um, the psychostimulant in in you know cigarettes, for example, okay. that you know, nicotine, that it's like a short-acting Ritalin insofar mm. as it stimulates um, uh, dopamine into the prefrontal cortex of the brain. That's why kids um, who will feel normal for the first time when they're smoking as adolescents, because they have a tendency to have an insufficient amount for the focus that they need to be in school or you know enjoy life. This happening. That one kid who smokes a cigarette and everybody else is saying gross, and the one kid says. Awesome. I finally feel good. And that's because it's actually self-treating, which is how a lot of uh, addictions actually work. So to 
assuming that you don't want to smoke cigarettes, um, what you want to do is you want to optimize this, this neuromodulator so you can do good, focused, creative work. This requires that you, you, know, you set up a sequence in the morning, but also that you not waste your time. Uh, morning is the key time for doing this. Now, a lot of people do it in different ways, cold plunges and, and all kinds of supplements, et cetera. Um, different strokes for different folks. But for me, what, what's required is getting up before dawn and, and working out really hard without taxing my intellect. Mm. So what that means is I'm not going to try to listen to a, a complicated lecture on neuroscience while I'm trying to you know bench press 225 pounds. Uh, that would defeat the purpose of what I'm trying to do. But I actually do a lot of weight training for the, the first hour of the day. Then I shower and I go to mass with my wife so I can have my soul on point and I can focus and concentrate in, in you, you, using these you know the meditation mm. that actually comes from worship. And then after that, we go home and then I drink my coffee. I, I don't drink coffee for the first couple hours after I'm awake. And the reason is because when you first wake up, your brain has a lot of adenosine floating around. Adenosine is a neuromodulator that inhibits the activity. It, it slows you down. It makes you tired. You have a lot at night so that you can actually go to sleep. Um, and you're, you're always balancing excitatory and inhibitory neuromodulators mm -hmm. so your brain's in balance. The reason that, that caffeine is effective is it looks molecularly just like adenosine and it fits into the receptors. And so it blocks adenosine from going in and making you tired. So coffee or caffeine doesn't pep you up. It stops you from getting uh, relaxed. Mm. And, and you get jittery when there's not enough parking places for adenosine to, module, to, to, to moderate you a little bit. So that's sense. what's going on. So, but if you, if you drink your coffee too early, there's still a lot of adenosine in there, and it'll be floating around waiting for you to metabolize the caffeine. And as soon as you do, it'll all go into the slots and you'll crash at two or three in the afternoon. So if you don't want to crash oh. in early afternoon, don't drink your coffee for the first couple hours in the morning. So you clear the adenosine naturally, and then all the parking spots are clear and you're good to go on your coffee. So that's what I do. I drink a, you know, a good a good, uh, a lot of coffee and all this together is putting me in the right zone. And then I can get up to three solid hours of actually really, really creative writing. But that means no devices, no interruptions, no phone calls. Um, there's only a few people that can intrude on that, which is basically my wife, kids, daughters-in-law, grandson, etc. Yeah. Interesting. And it's funny that you pick three hours when I was doing research for At Your Best. You know, there's Cal Newport stuff. There's a lot right. of stuff out there. You know, my range is three hours on a good day, assuming you're rested, assuming you've had a right. good morning routine. Maybe if you're under a deadline, five hours. But like when you're doing creative work, that kind of cognitive load that requires mm -hmm. creation, editing, thinking, et cetera, et cetera, from writing a research paper to preparing a lecture to writing a sermon or strategic planning. What is the science behind that, the narrowness of that window? Because when I was young, I thought I had eight hours of that. And then I woke up and went, no, you don't. You, <laughs> on a good day, you have three. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, and, and neuroscientists have looked at this quite a bit. And what they find is that it's just not optimal for you to be all day long in a, you know, a high state, you know, a lot of dopamine flowing into your prefrontal cortex. I mean, it would be exhausting for you. It probably would be not, it probably wouldn't be physiologically healthy as a matter of fact. And people are not designed to do that because, you know, most people's routine is not designed for super highly concentrated creative work. So we, did, we weren't evolved to get, you know, 10 hours a day of concentrated effort, as it true, turns true. out. Now, the reason that you can do 10 hours of super concentrated effort if you're taking modafinil or, 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 or Ritalin or something is because that is just going to open the spigots and, and either stop the uptake, the reuptake of the dopamine, or it's going to give you more dopamine to your prefrontal cortex for longer. And so that's really what those ADHD drugs do. And this is the reason there's a black market for them when kids are studying for their finals at universities. Because kids who don't have ADHD, what they want is 10 hours of creative time. That's what's going on. So that mm -hmm. your three, and Carrie and Arthur's three hours becomes 13 hours for the 19-year-old kid who's using illicit dopamine reuptake inhibitors, which is super bad for you when you're doing uh -huh. that. Because and then what like, happens? Do you crash after? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's also, it's addictive. It's really oh. bad for you. I mean, it's like, these are psychostimulants. I mean, this is meth, man. I mean, it's not exactly, but yeah, I mean, but, it's, it's, but you know, they're, they're, it's a, they're non-trivial similarities between most of the, of the dopamine enhancing ADHD drugs and, and, and methamphetamine. 
And so you don't want to mess around with this. You take it as directed and only as needed, and you don't take it because you forgot to study and you got a paper due tomorrow. It's really bad for you to do that. It's really destructive. So, but but that's the reason is because we're not we're not built to do that because in in troglodyte times humans didn't need to do that. But also just by by trial and error, creative people have always looked at that little window. So Ernest Hemingway, for example, um, he said he only wrote two hours a day, first thing in the morning. He wrote for, and first thing in the morning for him, because he was a drunk, was probably 10 a.m. You know, 10 a.m. Until the war- room got something. warm, right? Or something like that, till yeah, the room was yeah. no longer cold or yeah. whatever his yeah. test was. Yeah. Of course, he was in Havana, so it was probably always warm. But he would also, he would have his typewriter in a closet facing a wall on a shelf. And he was standing up, looking at the wall inside a closet, type for two hours to keep really, really focused. And he got that two-hour window every day. Now, one of the problems with using alcohol at night is that alcohol is a big dopamine enhancer, which is one of the reasons that people really, really like it. The problem is that you'll spike your dopamine and your dopamine will crash after you've artificially enhanced your dopamine, which makes you feel really crummy. That's part of the hangover. So if you drink at night, you're going to get less dopamine in the morning. One of the reasons I don't use any alcohol at all is because I can't afford to give away my morning dopamine because I want a little fun at night. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What happens with, so you're, you're getting out of your peak creative time, your heavy right. dopamine time by late morning or lunch, right? On a typical day. What do you do with yeah. the afternoons? Eight, so eight to 11 is when I can really crank. Um, yeah. 11 to 12 is kind of when I'm wrapping things up and doing things that are less creative. And I put all of my, and again, this is subject to my schedule because I'm on the road 48 weeks a year. Wow. I mean, I'm on the, I'm on, I do 175 speeches a year outside of Harvard. So I'm on the road a lot, but even when I'm on the road, my staff works really hard to make sure that in the hotel, I get eight to 11. Yeah. So I'm still able to do that. And I get in, I get to the gym, I go to mass. There's a mass every place. The great thing about being Catholic, it's a franchise system. You know, it's, it's like it's like 7-Eleven or McDonald's. There's one, a Starbucks. There's one every place, and it's the same. And someone's got that between. 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. mass or whatever. Somebody's yeah. got it. Yeah, it's yeah. not very hard. And you know, I'm usually in cities too. And then I get down to to make sure that I'm doing it almost always, even when I'm on the road. But then in the afternoon is when I put in. I mean, since Corona, everybody's just zooming all the time. And so I'm, you know, doing Zoom meetings and et cetera. And back in the day, before I was doing the kind of career that I have now, which is largely public education, um, I would be cleaning data sets or something that required a little bit of attention, but it didn't require actual creativity. You have to use your brain time optimally to the and, and tailor your schedule to the type of work that you have to do that fits what your abilities are, which fluctuate over the course of the day. And the theory is declining ability as the afternoon goes on in terms of creative cognitive work. But, you know, I'm probably best known for my podcast. I do a lot of writing. I do the prep in the morning. I do the interviews in the afternoon. Any problem with that? No, no, quite the contrary. I mean, it makes perfect sense that you're you're most creative doing your prep in the morning because as a professional— you can have the conversations and actually execute the podcast. You don't actually need the the all the dopamine in your prefrontal cortex to execute the podcast itself, but you do need to have the ideas. And so you're using that during your prime time. And you're when you're working with guests of your caliber, uh, most people aren't available in the morning, but they are surprisingly available in the afternoon. And Funny. now we know why. <laughs> now we know why. I feel like we could spend the whole hour on this, but I want to touch on some other things. That was yeah, incredibly sure. helpful. Thank you. So got a new book coming out. Yeah. You're working with Oprah Winfrey. Give us yeah. the backstory. How did that happen? Yeah, no, it's a, it's it's really a blessing to work with Oprah Winfrey. I mean, she's an iconic character, and obviously, yeah. I've known who she is and and been influenced by her since I was a young man. Um, she is a reader of my column in the Atlantic, How to Build a Life, and and she read it quite um, assiduously all the way through the coronavirus epidemic. She was locked down like everybody else, and she said sure. she would look forward to it every Thursday morning. And uh, she's like, "Who is this guy?" And so it was a guy locked down in Boston while she was locked down in, in Montecito, California. And, uh, and then when my book um, From Strength to Strength came out in 2022 about how to design your life so the second half is productive and creative and happy, um, she that. read that in immediate. I mean, she read it. She said she read it in the first two days that it was on the market. Mm-hmm. And she called. And she's like, this is Oprah Winfrey. And, and I'm like, yeah, and I'm Batman. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it was Oprah Winfrey, and and she wanted uh, uh, to talk about my book on her podcast, which is a book podcast called Super Soul. Now she's outstanding. 
She's a super strong reader, um, fast reader, and reads very comprehensively. She has, she's I mean, obviously incredibly bright, but she's just so good at that. She was quoting pa- passages from my book by memory to me while she was interviewing me about From Strength to Strength. It was extraordinary. But it was also like a house on fire. We got along so well because we see the world in the same way. I mean, if the the the, the bottom line of all of my research is that happiness is love. Give more. Love of the divine, love of your family, love of your friends, love toward everybody with the way that you you earn your daily bread. And, and she's like, we got to do more. And I said, I agree. So we did a couple of little projects together. And she had the idea of writing a book that would democratize a lot of the happiness science for millions of people. So we started writing it. I, you know, I went away, got a house on the beach in over a bunch of the winter when I didn't have to be in Boston. And just looked at the Pacific Ocean and, and wrote and sent chapters to her and we went back and forth. And and, and that's the book, um, Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. It's got a thousand academic references that won't bother anybody because it's written in as accessible a style as we can. And we also read it for the audiobook together. Um, and it's it's our opportunity, it's our privilege to bring the happiness science to millions and millions of people. Um, and we see the world in just so much the same way. And, and it's a fun friendship and partnership. Mm, well, congratulations on that. And right. uh, I want to know, there's a great podcast I listened to years ago. I imagine it's still floating around there on the internet called The Making of Oprah. Fascinating. Yeah. From huh. her days when she was at a regional station trying to make it big, long before she was the Oprah, everybody would know. She what was did in Baltimore, you, I think, early on, right? She was in Baltimore. Yeah. yeah great memory. Uh-huh. What What did you learn about Oprah and her skills and leadership, her ability to work with people? Like, what did you learn about the making of Oprah as you interacted with her? So I don't know as much about the backstory as a lot of people do. And, mm-hmm. and part of the reason is because I don't usually pay attention too much to, you know, the the... The, the private lives of famous people. But I've been, in my career, I've met a lot of pretty famous people. You know, I was the president of a big think tank in Washington, D.C. before I came to Harvard and was doing this work. And I would meet a lot of politicians. And and now, since I've done this work on happiness, I've met a lot of actors and, and, and sports figures, et cetera. They're usually not what they look like in public. And part of the reason is because they're people. They're ordinary people, you know, right. they're in flesh and yeah. blood and et cetera. And, and so looking perfect in public um, people can be quite disappointed when they're not perfect in private. Oprah is the same in private and in public. It's really extraordinary. I mean, she's she seems nice in public. She's nice in private. She seems normal in public. She's normal in private. She's easy to be around in public. She's easy to be around in private. She's got good judgment in both places. And this is really amazing because she doesn't have a normal life. I mean, she oh. doesn't go to the supermarket and she she can't because she's probably one of the five most famous people in the United States, maybe the world. And yet she's, she's maintained an equanimity. Hmm. She's maintained a perspective on life. And, and she does this through the relationships that she cultivates to people who really are close to her and, and what she learns from other people and what she tries to give. She's kind of cracked the code in a lot of ways, which is to, to be well, give a lot love more. I mean, she's really cracked the code in her own life. And so the result of that is that it's really, I think it's that she's as the, the, the best template for what true success should look like. A lot of people become very successful with money and power and the admiration of strangers and fame, et cetera. And they become really, really, really miserable. And mm-hmm. Oprah is an example of somebody who's been able to live that life because she's used that platform consistently to lift other people up. I can see the synergy between you and her in that area because this is something that, you know, you're devoting a portion of your time, a portion of your income to giving, loving, serving, helping. What, um, as you've watched your own progression as a leader over the decades, what dials have you turned up that have resulted in more happiness when it comes to generosity and and building a life of happiness? Yeah. It's not always been easy. I mean, the reason that I study happiness is because it doesn't come so supernaturally to me, mm-hmm. as in completely naturally, not supernaturally. Are you naturally it doesn't come cynical? Yeah. Are, are you naturally cynical or naturally no, glass I'm half empty? No, not naturally cynical. I'm just naturally melancholy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm naturally blue. 
is the, oh. and, and, and there's a reason for that. I mean, about half of your, your, your emotional baseline is, is genetic. And we know this from identical twin studies that are separated at birth and, and adopted into separate families, that, that half of your baseline mood, ebullient to depressed, is genetic. You know, your mother literally made you unhappy. <laughs> or, <laughs> no psychiatrist needed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, both of my parents were, I mean, there was a, there was trouble. I mean, there were great parents who loved me and loved each other um, and loved the Lord. But, you know, I mean, I come from gloomy stock, man. Um, mm. And the result of that is that it was always kind of an uphill slog. And, and it was hard because, you know, I'm, I'm married to it. You know, it's a, in the book, uh, in Build the Life You Want, one of the things that we talk about is the psychological personalities that people have. There's a great test that we have in the book that's been very psychometri psychometrically vetted called the person, the, the positive affect, negative affect series, PANIS. And you can take it in the book and you can find out what is your, your mood profile. You're one of four. Everybody mm. is one of four. Either you're High positive and high negative, a high affect person, that's called a mad scientist. You have intense positive and negative emotions. Or you're high positive and low negative. That's the cheerleader, right? Everybody wants to be that. It's not, it's actually not the greatest for lots of reasons that we talk about in the book, but everybody wants to be that. You can be high negative and low positive. That's the poet. Mm -hmm. Or you can be low, low. That's a sober, unflappable, low affect person. That's the judge. Each uh -huh. one of these is a gift from God, but you have to understand it and you got to manage it in the right way. You also need to marry somebody who compliments you and who mm. understands you and can help you moderate your, you know, the parts of you that need to be changed. If you're a judge, you might need to muster some enthusiasm. If you're a mad scientist, you might need to tone it down. And, um, and so this is really important because, you know, learning that about myself over the years has made it possible for me to understand exactly what was going on with my own genetics. I, it, the, my problem is I'm a super mad scientist, which means well, that I have, I'm a super high affect person. And my problem isn't that I'm not happy enough. The problem is that I've got too much unhappiness. You know, that's the problem. And that's what makes it feel like a kind of a melancholy, but it isn't. And understanding this made it possible for me to, 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 to moderate, to manage my negative affect. And that has been a game changer. It's just the science has been a game changer for me. So, for example, then one of the best ways that if you're a high negative affect person that you can lower your negative affect is by lifting weights, by getting into the gym, by beating up your body in a healthy way. Very important because that lowers negative affect. It doesn't raise positive affect. People say it makes me happy to work out. No, 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 no. It makes you less unhappy. Thank you for out. that. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> so if you're, if you're not a high negative affect person, you won't get very much psychological benefit from the gym. And I can tell when somebody says, I can't stay on a workout program. I say, now I know that you're a not a, that you're a low negative affect person because you're not getting the benefit that actually comes from it. So we need other techniques to keep you in the gym is the bottom line. But so that's, you know, learning about that has been really, really important so that I can, I, I realize it's not that I'm a, a melancholic per se, I'm not a depressive per se. It's just that I'm too negative. And so I need to, I'm not insufficiently positive. I'm super positive, but I'm also super negative. So I need to work on that. And that's one of the things that, that Oprah and I talk about in this book is understand yourself using the science, change your habits appropriate to your personality and your profile, hmm. manage yourself, get happier, and then you can focus on the parts of your life that really matter to build the life you want. Well, I can't wait to get a hold of the book and do the test. I imagine I'm a mad scientist as well, high affect. I have very strong emotions, positive or negative. It's your wife. Like, there's, is it? Is it? So it's your wife. Oh, I think, oh, you know, that would be interesting. Rule number one of being married for 30 years, do not guess what your wife would be. Um, I think she would be maybe the poet. Yeah. Or or the lower affect, you know, where it's a little more muted on each side. Uh -huh. She has more difficulty accessing emotions, but Tony, you can you can please I'll edit this out if I'm wrong. <laughs> well, you know, so, it's interesting because if she yeah. if you both take the panis, you'll understand each other better. And my wife totally. and I did. My wife is uh, is my wife is a cheerleader. So she you know, uh -huh. almost mad scientist, but she's a cheerleader. And so before we knew this, before we were able to put words to this, it was my natural negative affect, high negative affect levels, you know, they're hard on her. They're really hard on her. They just... Oh, mine are very hard on her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And part she's of like, it is because... Why is everything so extreme? Yeah, totally. Why, and mm -hmm. she's a judge and you're a mad scientist. You're perfect for each other. 
if you understand each other. So, you know, that's the reason the collect You may be a judge. Yeah, yeah. And the creative collaboration with Oprah is incredibly fruitful. She's a judge. Absolutely oh, really? unflappable. Absolutely unflappable. So oh. I find her incredibly steady and I find her judgment to be impeccable. And she finds me quite entertaining. So, you know. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Hey, she is known and I respect her so much as one of the best interviewers out there. Did you pick up anything in your interaction with her about what makes her such a killer interviewer? Yeah. Yeah. I asked her that and, I, oh. and I've noticed that because she's interviewed me and I've seen her interviewing other people yes. a lot. Of course. Yeah. I say, what's the secret? Uh-huh. And the answer is she loves her audience and she's asking questions for them. Mm. That's what she's doing. Mm. She's channeling the people that she loves. She's offering up interviews for the people who are watching. She's saying, this is what the people watching want to know. And I'm in the privileged position to be the one asking the questions. I'm a vessel. And, and by the way, this is the sanctification of work, is to mm. be a vessel for greater good, mm -hmm. to be a vessel for you know, God's work and, for the, and, for the, and to uplift other people, right? And wow. she's personifying that. That's the, that turns out to be the secret. It's incredibly humble. It's, it's humility, actually. That is so good to know because I've wondered about it and her questions are good and there's competing schools on interviewing. Larry King is like, I never read the book. Well, I devoured strength to strength, right? Because Larry's theory was, and he's been very public about this, yeah. you know, it's like most people have never heard of my guest and they haven't, right. if they've heard of him, haven't or her, haven't read the right. book. Right. And he goes, so why don't I just go there? But there, And I, I feel that way, like, you know, I'm working out of the basement of my house. Right. And I used to sit in the back row and take notes. And what I try to do is bring backstage conversations to my audience. Yeah. But I'm going to study Oprah's interviewing in a more detailed way because I think it's an area you could really grow in. No, all she's right. the, literally the best um, yeah. at that. I mean, I've, we've all watched her so much and um, she's great. She's actually great. And she does love her audience. You can yep. see that. They were wild about her. She was wild about them. And he yeah. is. Um, I have to get to strength to strength. And I know yeah. we got a few minutes left. Do you mind if we of switch course. gears? I love it. So I was at a period last year where I was reevaluating. I was 57, reevaluating the future of my life, you know, had stepped out of the lead pastor role of a church a few years earlier and doing this full time these days, doing a lot of speaking, not quite as much as you, but, you know, around the world, across America, speaking to leaders and really kind of fell into malaise. And I'm like, I don't think I have a clear vision for the future. And numerous friends recommended Strength to Strength that had just come out in 2022. I devoured it. And um, there were a couple of just real moments, fluid versus crystallized intelligence. I want to talk about real friends and deal friends and interesting problems. Those were some highlights that really helped me in a period of three or four months to get a super clear white hot vision again for the future. I'm and your so book was just that. so instrumental. So I want you well, to know I, that. I want to give I wrote, you- I wrote it for you. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I think you did. I, I did. think you did. And I, wrote, I wrote it for me too, quite frankly. I mean, this mm. is me search once again, but you know, the truth is there's- I like that. I wrote the book because I was looking for a book that could give me a roadmap to understand yeah. what was going on, this liminal phase in my life where I felt like one thing was ending and another thing was beginning, but I didn't know what it was. And so I was looking for materials on it and I didn't find the book. So I said, well- my wife said, I guess you need to read to write it. Yeah. And uh, how, how that's, that's literally you? I wrote the book. Hmm? How old were you when when you when that angst hit you or those questions hit you? About 50 yeah. is when I was thinking about that. And that's really oh, yeah. that's actually kind of, you know, said, there's in the ancient traditions that say that. You know, the Hindus talk about the ashramas, which are the quarters of the perfect life. And that the to go from the hardworking householder to the person that's stepping back into a state of enlightenment, that's called vanaprastha. It's supposed to happen at age 50. It's also thought of as for in Hindu tradition as the second adolescence. Okay. And there are, and there is, you know, if you read the Upanishads or, you know, the, the ancient Hindu scriptures, you'll see that they talk about how to do that. But there's mm -hmm. like the social scientists have not done the work. So I thought, <laughs> okay. So I went back and looked at the, the intelligence literature about what the cognitive strengths naturally are at different points. I looked at case studies about people who've navigated it successfully and unsuccessfully. I looked at the difference between people who got happier and happier as they got older versus mm. those who got unhappier and unhappier with a lot of surprises. And then I looked at the practices of the people that were doing really well in the second half of their lives. And that book became, well, you know, it's based, of course, every Christian and Jew watching this podcast knows that from strength to strength comes from the 84th Psalm, 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, that the ancient Judaic blessing, Michael el Chael, may you go from strength to strength, mm-hmm. is the whole idea. And that's what we all want to do. But it's not as simple as just like, yeah, go be strong. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Because there is this, this sense. And I mean, you make, uh, and if you can summarize the research for those who haven't read the book or aren't familiar with it, but it really was clarifying, like the whole Nobel Peace Prize, fluid intelligence, that happens very young in life, right? right. You're young, you're planting a church, you're starting out, it's your first job, it's your yep. first calling, it's your first career. I mean, I was in law briefly before this, and I'm like, I'm going to be in the Supreme Court by the time I'm 30. And, you know, that didn't work out, but <laughs> <laughs> ended up being yanked into ministry. But, you know, you have that ambition. And then I noticed in my 40s, I'm like, whoa, the ground is shifting here. So what happens in those first 20 years of adult life, 20 to 40? So this is the work of Raymond Cattell, who was a great British social psychologist writing in the 60s and 70s. And and Cattell noticed that there were two kinds of intelligences that people got at different points of life. Um, Everybody gets both. But the first kind of genius that he would see would be sort of your Mark Zuckerberg genius is in your 20s and in your 30s where you just keep getting better and better and better at innovation, focus, energy, in um, working memory. You're just really good at, you're kind of a ninja or a cowboy. You're able to solve problems on your own. And people who are truly excellent at anything using the mind or creativity, they have this fluid intelligence and abundance. It's just raw brains, but you get better and better and better. The problem is that it peaks because, and we've subsequently learned from the neuroscience literature that it, there's, a, there's structural reasons in the brain for this, but it peaks in the late 30s or at most the early 40s, and then it starts to decline. And so people find that they, they start to burn out in their mid-40s classically. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I used to love this job, and I don't, Same. I guess I'm getting tired of it. No, 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 no. You're not making progress, and it bums you out. All happiness at work or in life comes from progress. We're ma- God makes us for progress, not for stasis. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not supposed to get to a goal and stay there and enjoy it for the rest of our lives. You know, you, you can't enjoy anything for very long, but you can sure enjoy getting better and better and better and better. Whether your, you know, your, your, your run time, your mile time keeps going down, your bench press keeps going up, your productivity mm. keeps going up, your salary keeps going up. We're, we're metric driven. The scale keeps going down, whatever your thing is that you're working on. But as soon as you stop, there's no reward. You know, if you go on a diet, you can gladly forego the the foods that you crave if the scale is going down. It's such a reward. But your reward when you hit your goal is you never get to enjoy the food you like ever again for the rest of your life. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. thank you. you know, mm-hmm. We're progress oriented people. And totally. so that's why people burn out once they've well, once they've crossed the top of their fluid intelligence curve. They just notice that they're not getting better at what they were doing before. They might be plenty good at it. They just like it less. And that's a huge problem. This is, you know, midlife crisis time. People quit, you know, they want to quit their jobs. They don't know. I hate being a lawyer. I thought you liked being a lawyer. I used to like being a lawyer. I don't know why I don't like it anymore. I can't, I'm not in the zone. I'm not in my groove, yada, 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 yada. Well, what's going on there? That's the bad news. It sounds horrible. Like, you know what? Life is best at 39 is downhill from there. In that aspect, yes. But here's the good news. There's a second intelligence curve that comes in behind it that's increasing through our 40s and 50s and 60s. It stays high in our 70s and 80s and 90s. We get this for the rest of our life. That's called crystallized intelligence. It does not rely on working memory. It does not rely on indefatigable focus or innovation. You don't have to, you're not going to come up with a single new biotech idea. However, it's based on pattern recognition, wisdom, teaching ability, and using the things that you already know. It's like having an incredible library and knowing how to use it. That's the reason, by the way, that professional historians, they tend to do their best work after 65. The reason is because of the pure crystallized intelligence. If you're a history professor, take care of your health because your best books are coming in your 80s, is the bottom line. But if you're, right, and if you're a poet, which is a pure fluid intelligence thing where you're inventing new stuff with words, you do half your work before you're 40 and the best half in the first half. So mm-hmm. if you look at Ezra Pound or T.S. Eliot, all their best poetry was in their 20s and 30s and they lived into their 80s. And that's because they were fluid intelligence guys. It must've been really frustrating for them. And a lot of case studies of famous people where that is in fact the case. So the point is that you should be focusing on fluid tasks early and crystallized tasks later. For example, if you're a lawyer, you should be a star litigator at 30 
and you should be the managing partner at 60. Mm. That's where you're identifying talent, training up new people, uh, figuring out the patterns and what's actually going on with the firm and the cases. You're using your, your, instru- your professor intelligence at 60. If you're a startup entrepreneur at 30, big new biotech or you know, software idea, <clears throat> you should be VC at 60. Where you know venture capitalists, where you're mm-hmm. figuring out the next great, you know, you're 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 great at identifying talent, but you don't have to be the talent. And this is true for all of us. You know, when I was 35, I was writing academic journal articles that were so mathematically sophisticated, I can't read them today. I, <laughs> I literally don't know what they say. But today, you know, I have a, a weekly readership of a column that's that's public education in the Atlantic about the science of happiness of 500,000 people. What, and, and and I couldn't have written it when I was in my 30s. It would have been like bloop, bleep, bleep, bloop, bloop, bloop. Nobody understands what I'm talking about. So, and and the reason is because I, I looked at the data. I'm a child of the data. And I said, trying to keep doing these articles is not going to work. But now I can explain things. I'm a much better professor than I was in the mm. past. I mean, right now, people watching us and listening to us right now um, are not neuroscientists or social scientists, but we're talking about some very sophisticated research right now in language that anybody can understand because we're crystallized intelligence guys, not fluid intelligence guys. So this was, I'm going to play out a real case scenario, AKA my life. Um, And I remember my thirties, fast growth curve, you know, fastest growing church in our denomination became one of the largest, the whole deal. Then I burned out. Thank you for the predictive uh, research on that at around 41, but I remember being 42. And for the first time in my life, on the other side of burnout, I started to recognize patterns I couldn't make heads or tails of in my 20s or 30s. People would leave the church, I'm like, I don't know what happened, but I was moving too fast to stop. And then at 42, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I know what's gonna happen next. And then boom, boom, boom. And sure enough, that's what happened. And I'm not a prophet, but I'm like, pattern recognition. It just started to make sense and it came together. And now what do I do? Basically, people ask me if we really get into a detailed conversation. I do pattern recognition for church leaders. Right. That's basically what I do these days. And that's that's my writing. That's That's what coaches do. If you're a football coach, you're doing pattern recognition. Effectively. It's like, if you do this, this is going to happen. How do you know? Trust me. Exactly. <laughs> so that is the metamorphosis from fluid to crystallized intelligence right. in a nutshell. That is, that is exactly right. And it's interesting because you see this in sports a lot where mm-hmm. you're a player, let's say you're the, you're the quarterback of a football team, you know, just innovative, thinking really quickly. And then you leave and you become a coach. And then later you're a color commentator on television right. where you're saying, the tight end just moved this way. This is what's going to happen in this play. Have you ever seen Tony Romo actually do color commentary up for NFL football? Not a football, football guy, but most it's of the people listening to this are. He's so he, good, is he? You know, he sees them line up and he says, what's going to happen on this play? And it's always right. <laughs> because he has crystallized intelligence because he's an ah. old guy. That's why. That's what he's got. And he, you know, he doesn't have the fluid intelligence to actually get down on the floor. It also probably doesn't have the knees to get down on the field. Right, but, right. But that's what he's really, really good at. And he's like a, a walking crystallized intelligence machine doing football commentary. It's amazing. So talk to the leaders who are 45, 50, 60 years old, still trying to live for the glory days. You mentioned Einstein, who really, and I read Isaacson's biography. I mean, he didn't have a lot of breakthroughs past 40. I mean, Nobody does. Brilliant. And if you look at the you know, great you know, rock and roll musicians, they, they don't have they don't have interesting hits. The Stones are still playing, but haven't had a hit since yeah, 1980. Yeah. I mean, they're like a like hundred, yeah. but they're singing stuff that they were doing when they were 25. You know, exactly. I, I Can't Get No Satisfaction was the number one on the charts when I was one and I'm 59 years old. So yeah, yeah that was a long time ago. I hear you, and Arthur. year I was that. born, right? I'm a year younger than you. And it's like, come on. But yeah. they're still out there and they're yeah. still selling it out. Yeah. But nobody wants their stuff from 2014. Yeah, yeah. No, right? no. YouTube's I mean, like getting a, to that place now too. And Right. Innovation comes for most people. And again, you know, your results may vary, uh, yeah. right? But the point is that, you know, and once you figure this out, by the way, you can do all kinds of creative work, but it's synthetic, not innovation. And mm. synthetic means you're synthesizing a lot of other people's work and telling them what it means. So now when I write books, I'm reading volumes of research that, and the, the researchers are incredibly innovative, but they don't know what their work means. 
Mm-hmm. They don't know. And they don't have it in the context, the story about actually how this affects people's lives. They're, they're just coming up with amazing discoveries and hanging them on the Christmas tree in various places. They're like, no, no, no. Here's what it means. You know, this relates to this, relates to this. And Aristotle asked this question. And this reminds me of what the neuroscience says about the insular cortex of the brain when leaders say the following sets of things. And the social science, the social psychology literature has run experiments that show that it's actually right. And here's how you can use it in three ways. Mm-hmm. That's crystallized intelligence. And that's really creative, but it's, it's synthesis, not innovation. So give some advice and we'll pick, because if you're VP basketball operations, you're already doing the whole organization, et cetera, et cetera, for an NBA franchise. But for the average pastor or priest in your tradition, who's 53, which is close to the average age of pastors these days, where do they play to their strengths? Where do they hit their head against the wall? Their strengths are coaching and teaching, coaching and teaching. So it's uh, you always move into a role where you're identifying talent and developing talent as you get older. That's what you want to be doing. So you're less the operator, more the sage. You're more the instructor. Always it's your instructor curve. Now, that also means that you're instructing people at a, at a, at a broad level, but not trying to have the big original breakthrough, helping to interpret what is out there and what it actually means. So that means that, by the way, that one of the greatest things you can do as a theologian late in life is write commentary right, is actually writing commentary because you're pulling from a million different sources and you're saying how it all hangs together and you need to know a lot. You have to have a big library in your head. Plus, you're trying to explain it to other people so you're a teacher. So that's an ideal kind of thing to do, for example. So if you're going to be, you know, you're doing pastoral work, you want to make sure that you're, it's especially good to be doing pastoral work for younger people in the profession. As you get older, cultivate the newer people in the profession. If you can, go into teaching. Teach mm-hmm. a class or two, and then be doing the kind of synthetic work that looks big picture, as opposed to having that you know the new huge breakthrough that nobody's ever seen before. Well, it'll be wonderful to get around to one day if we ever get that opportunity. But in the last few minutes, I got to skip down to the thing I've quoted probably most about the book, which is just a small section. And your son came up with it, but I've shared this probably a hundred times in the last year. Real friends, deal friends. Real friends, deal friends. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we have a a great Surgeon General, um, Vivek Murthy, who was also the Surgeon General under President Obama. And uh, he, after he left the administration, because when Trump came into the White House, he had four years to do some thinking (laughs) before he came back to the administration. And he wrote a book on loneliness because he thought it was the biggest public health crisis. I had him on my podcast and I said, what's the biggest public health crisis? He didn't say coronavirus. He didn't say gun violence. He didn't say opioids. He said loneliness. And he knows what he's talking about. Loneliness it lies behind the, the opioid epidemic and so many other problems that we have. And, and, and the evidence is really clear that people have fewer and fewer close friends who know them well. Why? It's not because we don't have contact with people. Although, since the coronavirus catastrophe, I mean, look, this is the dark one at work, pulling us apart from each other, Mm. (laughs) making sure that, you know, people stop going to church for, you know, years at a time. It's just, it's complete insanity, you know, that we, we fell for that one from the devil. That's quite something. You got to give the guy his, you got to give the dark one his due. He's good at his job. He's sharp. He's sharp. He knows what he's doing. Anyway, so, that's off subject. Sorry. So the point being that, you know, Vivek Murthy and so many others have found that that the number of close friends who know us well is falling and has been since about 1990. And that's contemporaneous with many of the decreases in, in general, hap- general happiness levels in the population. This does not mean that we don't see other people. It means that we're not connecting deeply with others. That's the difference between what I call deal friends and real friends. Deal friends are the useful people around you at school or at work. The people that, you know, help you out and you might even like them. The real friends are the people who are not useful to you. They're beautifully, cosmically useless. What you have is love. And, and, and you know, and if you don't do the work, you're going to lose your useless friends is the bottom line. Mm-hmm. You're going to lose it because, you know, it, it takes time out of your schedule to cultivate friendships. Um, you know, this, we're not, this is not the America anymore where you, you know, chill out with a guy across the, you know, the fence out back and, open a can of beer and, you know, talk about the Red Sox. This is just not happening in the same way that it used to in the past because of the structure of American society. And especially for all the hard workers that are watching this podcast, 
you got to go out of your way to make it happen. And, you know, I saw it in my own life and I saw it in the data. And, and by the way, this goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle talked about virtuous friendships that are atelic, which means mm. they don't have a, a specific telos. They're useless in their way, but, but beautiful because they're usually based on a common love. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that, you know, I have a very, very close friend in Atlanta. And it's a guy I don't work with. It's a guy I don't live near. His name is Frank Hanna, and I just love him. And, and we have this, we have the, you know, this common love, which is for our, our we have, you know, we, we're followers of the master. And, and, you know, we love the same thing. We, we're interested in sports kind of, and, yeah. and, and he's interested in my work and I'm interested in his work and we go out of our way. I sit on his board and he sits on my board and, you know, but these are pretexts. And I talk to him every week because he's my real friend and he never ceases to ask me questions about my faith and I about his. Mm -hmm. We've gone to Rome together to meet the Pope. You know, this is the kind of, these are the field trips that real friends have. It's not necessarily religion. It might be building birdhouses or. Right. But long after the, the deal is when the work goes away and you're not speaking 175 days a year and you're not writing books anymore, you and Frank are still going to be friends. Oh yeah. Frank and I are yeah. going to be like old dudes on rocking chairs a couple times a year uh, talking about the good old days. Arthur, I can't believe our time is gone, but I want to thank you so much. This 600 episodes in, this is a extremely calorie-dense episode, one to rewind and listen back to over and over and over again. I learned so much. Thank, thank you, you. Okay, direct us where you want us to go. What All right, well, today? it's the, the new book is called Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier with me and Oprah Winfrey. And you can find that or in all my columns and all the books and, and, and even... If you want to take a happiness class, you can go and find it at arthurbrooks.com, all one word, arthurbrooks.com. And there's a, a lot of resources there for, for Christian people and secular people and everybody else. But you'll see pretty quickly, those are my fellow sisters and brothers in the Christian faith, you'll see that there's a, there's a, there's a faith that pulses through everything I do. At least I hope you'll see that. And, um, and the one thing I'd ask, Carrie, to you and, and, your, and your fans is that you'll pray for me as I do my work. I will. I do have a prayer journal and you know what? I will add you to my prayer journal. I pray for leaders uh, one particular day of the week and I will add you. Thank do you. you want to mention what you told me before we hit record about um, your availability? Yeah. Oh um, yeah. You know, yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. No, this is an interesting thing. You know, for, for the longest time I would, um, I did research on tithing. All right. Tithing. And, you know, the biblical tithe is give away a 10th of your money. And my dad right. always, you know, my dad was always an assiduous tither. And one time I asked him, I said, dad, um, Pre or post tax, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. And, and he said, I always give before taxes. And I'm, said, I'm like, dad, after tax, come on, what's wrong with you? Why? Why are you giving pre-tax? And he said, just in case. <laughs> he, was a, he was a practical guy. He was a mathematics professor. Anyway, huh. as I was thinking and doing research on that, it became very clear to me that the a, a better, more robust understanding of tithing is not just 10% of your money. That's just table stakes, man. It's 10% of what you got that creates value. You know, and that's that's maybe your love or maybe your attention. It's maybe your relationship to other people. Are you giving away 10% of what really is valuable in your life? Are you giving away 10% of your love? You know, maybe to people mm. who don't deserve it. And so I was thinking to myself, what can I do that really creates value? And, and that's actually my ideas. My bread and butter is my ideas. Synthetic, <laughs> crystallized, but ideas nonetheless. So I thought, what am I doing to tie that? And so to that end, I actually hired somebody who works with me in my office, um, the company that I have, to spread the ideas of happiness, who's in the business of making sure that I'm tithing and then some. It's usually about a third of my time is dedicated to, to, to sharing these ideas, um, not for money, for people who can use these ideas largely in the Christian community. Mm -hmm. Um so to that end, you know, anybody who's watching us who, if you, I'm on the road all the time. If you want me in your pulpit Wednesday evening, talking about the science of happiness to fellow believers, and I'm in the area, um, I would very, very, very much welcome an invitation. And I, if it works out, all the better. Wow. All right. Well, uh, brace yourself, assistant. This is an audience that may take you up on that offer. And Arthur, that's extremely generous. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for what you're doing. God bless you. God bless you. Well, I told you to listen to the end. <laughs> Wasn't that generous of Arthur? What a great conversation. I hope to have him back in the future. My goodness, what an incredibly generous, sharp 
human being he is. And uh, if you want more, you can go to the show notes. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 599. You can also find transcripts there. Uh, I got a DM the other day, someone going, hey, what are your guests recommended XYZ? Just go to the transcripts, you'll find it. Uh, and this is brought to you by the art of building a generous congregation and by glue. So if you are tired of broke thinking in your church, or you simply want to fund your vision, go to the art of If you act now, you'll get in to a live walkthrough of the course with me. If you register by September 29th, the art of and by glue every 40 seconds, someone takes their life around the globe. Glue is doing something about it. You can participate in the solution by going to get.glue.us slash suicide prevention. That's get.gloo.us slash suicide prevention. Well, from one great conversation to the next, next episode, I have Jim Davis. And this was delightful. He's got a brand new book, which I highly recommend, called The Great Dechurching. And we talk about why people have stopped going to church. We talk about the fastest and largest church attendance shift in U.S. history. Hint, it's down, not up. And a whole lot more. Here's an excerpt. On a percentage scale, the previous largest shift that we have had was the 25 years post-Civil War. And, mm-hmm. and you know, people are either returning to church or going for the very first time, immigrating, whatever. Um, our last 25 years, the shift is 1.25 times greater, just going the opposite direction. In terms of numbers, our shift mm. is larger than the first Great Awakening, second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham crusades combined, just going the opposite direction. That's coming up. Also, a really cool personal conversation with Dave Ramsey, Judah and Chelsea Smith, Mike Todd, John Christ, Philip Yancey's coming back. We've also got Jenny Katrin and a whole lot more coming up on the podcast. And did you know that there are 500 million podcasts worldwide? That's a lot of podcasts. And, you know, a lot of them, they sputter and they die, but you can easily miss the gold that is out there. So with all these options, here's what I want you to do. I want you to discover the Art of Leadership Network. You hear that little stinger on my podcast? It's like the Art of Leadership Network. Yeah, well, there are other podcasts there too. People like Jenny Catron, Adam Weber, Chris Cook, uh, Tony Newhoff, Rob Meter, and more. You can follow the Art of Leadership Network on Insta, and then you'll know exactly where to find the leadership conversations you need. So it's a great follow. Go to Instagram, check out the Art of Leadership Network. Once you follow it, we will see you there. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I truly appreciate you. If you've listened this far, thank you so much. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Maybe share this episode with a friend and we'll catch you next time on the podcast. I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.